Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Questions for Corbett here on the 24th of May, 2022. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we're going to dip dip into the mailbag today for a question that I received through the contact form on CorbettReport.com from Justin, who wrote, "Uh, Hi, James. I'm having trouble with voluntarism, to put it succinctly. I am on your side with voluntary interaction away from the state. My problem is how to combat the entrenched narrative. To quote a YouTube commenter, (laughs) that might be your first problem, (laughs) to quote a YouTube commenter, when more and more restrictions on cigarette advertisements were put in place, there was a decline in the number of smokers. 42% of American adults smoked in the 60s. Then laws were passed that banned advertising cigarettes to children and near schools, advertising on TV, advertising on billboards, forced them to add warning labels, forced them to use plain packaging, etc. Now, 13% of American adults smoke. We need to put similar regulations on advertising of fast food, sugary cereals, sugary drinks, unhealthy snacks, etc. Force, need, force, regulate, force. With a result like this, how do I defend voluntarism? They seem to believe that the state provided them with a satisfactory result, thus adding validity to the existence of the state so they can continue to push for more force and violence against the free market. I don't know what to make of this, and examples like this conflict with my understanding that voluntary interaction is the goal that we should strive for. How do I combat narratives defending the state's actions? Is there any good literature that helps parse these nuanced situations or provides counterexamples? I feel there are holes in my knowledge that have yet to be patched, and I'm having trouble with finding these answers. Thank you for everything you do. Justin. All right, Justin, thank you very much for that question. I know that you are not alone in having these types of questions or struggling with these issues. I'm sure every single statist, and I'm sure pretty much everyone in the world, is uh, steeped in the statist system their whole lives and is probably a statist before they become a voluntarist or anarchist. So uh, I'm sure everyone struggles with these types of questions and counterexamples and, well, what do I say to that? Um, so thank you for sending in that question. And allowing me the opportunity to uh, to parse that out a little. And you do ask also for um, any literature, any good literature that helps parse these nuanced situations or provides counterexamples. Well, coincidentally, I was just reading a book that was recently sent to me by a listener. Uh, it's called The Essence of Anarchy. It is by Richard Cox. And it is, uh, I would say, about these types of issues, the fundamental questions about anarchy, voluntarism. Can, can life without a state coercive monopoly uh, on violence government exist? How would that work? And how would we deal with this situation or that situation? So I will, of course, put the link into that book so that you can go and support Richard Cox and purchase the book and read through it yourself. I think it does answer some of these questions that you're struggling with here. But rather than just me reading passages of uh, from the book, why don't we bring Richard Cox on to talk about it? Richard, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much, James. Well, first of all, since this is your first time on The Corbett Report, perhaps you can introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Okay, yeah. So I've been a listener of The Corbett Report for longer than I can actually remember. And must go back into the, the noughties at least and have been interested in these kind of themes. My sort of more official background is in Eastern spirituality and meditation. And I've been interested in that sort of co-arising of more geopolitical issues and have walked down both of those areas and that's accumulated and recently I've um, written a couple of books one on the nature of conspiracy theory and this other one on anarchism because I think that probably a lot of people who get into this kind of area um, 
think at some point, well, what's the solution to all this? If this all this, this greater level of darkness going on, is it some sort of direct democracy thing? And then there's a kind of a, a funneling out of ideas that don't seem to work. And a lot of us end up deciding that anarchism is the most morally justifiable and efficacious position. Yes. So I would say that your book is kind of a, not a document of your process of going through and arriving at those conclusions, but you do talk a little bit about those types of objections and things that come up along the way and um, how, the types of things that people think about when they're talking about non-coercive society. Um, first of all, I guess let's just set the terms of the what we're talking about today. What What is anarchy in your definition? Well, a reflection upon that was really part of what prompted me to write the book, because it's very much associated with, well, on one, on one level, it's associated with chaos, okay, and disorder. And I think we can move past that pretty quickly. And on another level, I thought of it for a long time as being the absence of government. And I would talk about it as such. And often that would cause a breakdown in communications. People take a sense of security from some kind of government. And when I thought about this more, I thought, really, I could get more precise about that. Because you can have governance in your local football club and they can set rules like, well, don't wear your muddy boots in the changing room. And that's not an oppressive, hierarchical, domineering system. That's just common sense. We can have structures and systems that we would recognize as being government-like. So really, anarchy, anarchos, means no rulers, which is a little bit different because I don't think of the governing body of the football club as your, your ruler necessary. So I tried to center the book around a question of being a model based on consent or coercion. So anarchy then, I'm taking it to mean no coerced relationships, only consensual relationships. And that, that's the purest kind of essence I could get to of it. Right. No one's going to tell me not to wear my muddy cleats in the changing room, you oppressive room. No, of course. Yes, it is. If it's a voluntary relationship, I choose to be a part of this club and this club has certain rules. Um, all right. So let's Let's, I mean, obviously that does sound nice in just sort of an abstract way, but when you start to get into the nitty gritties of it, it can become a lot more difficult to think about how would we do this without the, the ever-present threat of the government's gun pointed to people's heads. Um, and you do tackle the, I think, the largest issues in your book, education, healthcare, social security, these types of really bedrock issues. But this, it, let, let's talk specifically about what Justin's talking about, or more specifically what the YouTube intelligentsia are talking about. Um, uh, restrictions on cigarette advertisements, reducing the number of smokers. Hey, great, awesome. So now let's have restrictions on advertising sugary drinks and sugary cereals and fast food and unhealthy snacks. And then maybe we can start to look for other things that we can ban advertising of. What's the problem with this if it gives us the results that we're looking for? Well, I think it's worth just thinking about what Justin's asking. So on one level, Justin's asking about, well, what is the answer to this? How do I understand this for my own intellectual satisfaction? And there might be another question in there. So how do I relate to YouTube commenters and who, who are throwing these kind of points? And one answer that could be is you don't get onto Odyssey or something. It's a <laughs> higher level of interaction. Um, and I mean that jokingly, but also seriously, you do encounter people who, of course, and you, you're talking to a brick wall um, and I, I do think of talking about anarchism as being often akin to an act of cult deprogramming rather than having a conversation where you're likely to meet an open-minded person. But just going back to the the technicalities, I'm not, prior to anything, 
opposed to all kinds of regulation, like with the muddy boots. Or maybe you live in an apartment block, which is all privately owned, and maybe a tobacco firm wants to advertise its products on in the communal areas. And, and some residents might like that because they're going to get a, a bit of reduction in their rent. And some residents might know, I don't want my kids walking past tobacco ad- advertisements. So if there was if it if it went the other way and there's a restriction, um, I'm not opposed to that. I think that's in, entirely legitimate. I, I wouldn't want necessarily those kind of adverts around. It's when you have these illegitimate giant entities like states imposing these kind of regulations over a vast area that's essentially coercive. They have no, and I'm making a distinction there because you can legitimately acquire through some sort of homesteading or um, transference the land for an apartment block, maybe for a housing estate, and run that with some level of communal kind of governorship. Um, But states don't legitimately acquire the land that they see to govern, which means it's comparatively absolutely vast an area covering a double digit percentage of the Earth's surface in some cases, which just leads to to chaos because you can't set one rule in Washington, D.C. that applies throughout the entire United States or one rule in Moscow that runs all the way to Vladivostok. It's bonkers. Um, So the problems that that's going to create, I think, I think you, you alluded to it, James, that where, where is it going to stop then? And I think you could just turn around and put this back on the, the, the YouTube commenter. Well, do you see any problems with this? And in, in the book I wrote, I think there's like 140-odd question marks because I wanted it to be like a conversation where I'm encouraging the reader, the YouTube commenter in this case, to think about, to examine their own positions. What could be the problem with that? Is it going to move to alcohol? Are we going to have those when you go into the pub for your pint of beer? Uh, are we going to have the kind of images that you see on cigarette packets of people dying of throat cancer? Is that going to be someone dying of alcoholism on every on every beer pump now? What about horse riding? OK, um, that's pretty dangerous. You know, should we have pictures of, of people with broken necks um, on horse saddles? Or doesn't this all really play in if we if we allow the government the right to do this? Doesn't that just then create the war on drugs and the associated massive surge of crime? And ultimately, aren't we saying, given the right circumstances, the government has the right to put me under house arrest for an indefinite period if there's maybe a virus, maybe not, who knows? So there's a one thing. One thing would be a runaway effect. If we don't know it. Another thing uh, would be the YouTube commentator has, I would suggest, not passed out the difference between correlation and causality. Okay, so... There's a drop in smoking over the time, which coincides with government policies. It might really be appealing to think those government policies cause that drop. But you see comparisons between different countries like Canada introduced the, the pictures of the cancers on cigarette packets. And lo and behold, over the next 10 years, the rate of youth uh, teen smoking went down. But it went down in the United States at a comparable rate and they didn't have those images. So. That's another factor. And it's especially when you run these experiments over giant areas, it's very, very hard to have a control group. It's not like the advantage of anarchism. There's a lot of pluralism in anarchy, everyone trying their own thing. And um, you might have come in at some point there, but I would say the the, the other major thing, James, uh, when talking about regulation is what's known as the, the Peltzman effect from the economist Sam Peltzman. Are you familiar? I am not. It doesn't even ring a bell. Okay. Well, You've probably seen, I think a lot of the audience will have seen, the go-to example for the benefits of government-forced regulation is compulsory seatbelt laws. And there's kind of a narrative that, oh, everyone knows now that was a good idea. And the only people that resisted that were kind of southern redneck hicks who were 
ranting and raving about their liberty being offended and that they're right to put themselves and other people at risk by not wearing seatbelts and all the sensible people, all the clever people, all the people with an ounce of common sense fully support the state imposing seatbelt mandates. And I'm not sure if I was left in a room by myself to think about this issue that I would see what the problem could be of that. I'd have, oh yeah, that's, that's, a, that's challenging. You know, what, what could, I mean, it does seem like a, a, a good, the other than maybe a runaway effect, that um, there's no kind of bad to that. Well, the economist Sam Peltman from um, the University of Chicago analysed the um, the effect these regulations had had, the, the compulsory receiver regulations, compared to what they were supposed to have. They were supposed to bring a 20% drop in the death rate in fatalities and car accidents. And he found that he couldn't find anything after 10 years, nothing. There just didn't seem to be any drop in fatalities. There seemed to be more accidents going on. And this really puzzled him. And what he concluded was, look, looking through the, the lens of an economist, that essentially people people kind of like to drive a bit faster than they should. People like to drive a bit recklessly. People like to overtake and get on and get home as well, wherever they could. And if you make a car safer, you're essentially lowering the cost of that. So in, in economic thinking, what happens when you lower the cost of something? People buy more of it. So people people started driving fractionally more recklessly. And there were less driver fatalities, but more overall accidents. And more for all the drivers that didn't die, now pedestrians and cyclists did. So even the most obvious regulation, or that one must be a good, has these unintended consequences. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'll just put it in a framework that Canadians can understand. Yeah, it's like when hockey didn't, every hockey player wasn't wearing a helmet and a lot of padding. You're going to play a little differently than once you get all of that padding in place and you feel more secure, then you're going to play a lot more violently, I suppose, um, because you're less concerned about the the repercussions of that. Um, And so that does make a certain amount of sense. Um, I I will echo what you say uh, in that uh, I think... The, uh, let me, let me organize my thoughts because you put a lot of, on the table there. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think one of the ways that one of the, the, maybe one of the base things that we should address is yes. What layer or which way is Justin directing this question? Is this really, uh, can, can I improve my argumentation against people who are asking for, you know, sure challenging me on this, or am I trying to prove it for myself? Are you asking this question, like, does this make sense? Maybe it is better. If if that's the case, then of course the answer is going to be quite different. Because I would say uh, uh, the utilitarian argument does not appeal to me at all. Oh, well, we can, even if it were true, even if we just took it at face value, we can achieve a percentage drop in this or that activity by instituting this threat of violence against you if you choose to do this activity. I, I, I don't think that's, I, I still wouldn't take that trade-off. I, I, I think it's, for me, it's about the principle. But I understand there are other people who are wired differently and who do think that the utilitarian results are, uh, are what we should go by. Um, having said that, then who gets to choose exactly who gets to choose which standards or which activities or which things we should be concentrating on and what results we should be striving for with regard to that i'm sure a lot of people a lot of people not everyone but a lot of people would say yes reducing smoking rates or something is overall for the good but what about when we do get into more controversial areas okay so now we're going to start controlling what people eat and we have decided that these foods are contributory to bad health outcomes, which are defined as this. And so we will start banning advertising of those foods. 
or uh, slapping warning labels. But then, well, what about other types of health outcomes? Or what if what if somebody got into power one day who decided, you know, it, there'd be a lot less uh, sexual trans, uh, transmitted disease and infections if we just outlawed sex before marriage? And, or imagine, again, take it to the reductio ad absurdum. It would be safer if everyone were just locked in a padded room their entire life and let out once once an hour for, or one hour a day for exercise or something along those lines. The results for overall health would be fantastic, guys, as measured by us. So that's the way that I start approaching this question is, yes, exactly. Reductio ad absurdum, where, who gets to decide and, and under what way? And then what say do we have if we decide that, you know, maybe I don't agree with this. Maybe this is going in the wrong direction. Then is this a voluntary thing in which I can say, well, no, I, I don't want to choose to abide by those rules. So these are the types of issues that get dredged up in my mind when I'm confronting this question. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to respond to with regard to that? Well, I think the reductio ad absurdum is already here. It's not in the abstract. It's in the real world. So what, another um, area that Sam Peltman investigated, not one I wrote about in the book, but I, I picked up on the work of uh, Dr. Mary Ruhr, a research scientist, was on the effects of regulation in medicine and the role the FDA plays, the Food and Drug Administration in the, in the U.S., on being the the sole regulator, taking responsibility for the passing or failing of all drugs. And again, on the face of it, sounds like a good idea. Government agency, not subject to corruptible market forces, um, can make this dispassionate judgment on on drugs. And it tends to be like quite conservative because the incentives are that the FDA people will potentially get in trouble if they release a drug that goes and kills thousands of people will not get in trouble for holding it back so that again sounds sounds like that's the way you'd want it um what dr mary ruart who is also a, a famous libertarian as well as a research scientist um calculated was that the the delay time on releasing drugs and causing uh, uh retarding medical uh, in, innovations had lowered the life expectancy of every american by five years from around the 1970s onwards and that's just incredible because no one knows about that no one even thinks that no one thinks i'm going to live five years less because of, of the fda and even you know if, if pharmaceutical drugs aren't your thing even uh, to the point of restricting uh, how doctors could talk about folic acid and recommending it for pregnant women um dr ruett estimated that that was as bad as the thalidomide scandal in in europe the the prevention of that so We've already hit the reductio ad absurdum. It's, it's right out there in society through this kind of state regulation. An incredibly when you important have a coercive point. institution. Yeah, I, I think again, this is a difficult concept for people to get their mind around because of the seen and the and the not seen. And yeah. it's easier to know what we can see rather than those sorts of things that are. Uh, the abstract of the control group that doesn't exist, kind of thing. Um, if people want to. Uh, approach this in a different manner. I would suggest they check out my film literature in the New World Order on Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, talking about what ultimately led to the formation of the FDA and how that ultimately leads to less safe products and also um, the uh, cartelization of industries like meatpacking that Sinclair was supposedly concerned about in the first place. So um, again, it's an incredibly important point to, to understand there, but it's so much easier it's so much easier to argue from that YouTube commenter's perspective because, again, it's it's you can see it, you can put your fingers on it, correlation, causation, whatever. There's a statistical drop, and look, governments can come in and act, and it'll help solve problems. And that's I think that's kind of the appeal of sadism 
at, at its base. I want to accomplish this. I can't do it. I can't make everyone do it, but the government can. So I, uh, we need a government to come in and do what I want it to do to the population. It's a very appealing thing. Um, I, I guess this goes to the other level of this. Is there any convincing of people, statists who are not open to, open-minded, shall we say, on this topic? Is there any way to actually convince them of this? Or is this something that, uh, that we will always have to deal with, is that a large portion of the public just don't want to approach these issues? Just to to speak to the point you made there, James, it's a very easy argument. Of course, it's kind of a non-argument. Cause I, if I wrote a book from that perspective, I could have done it in a day. Just every chapter would say the government should regulate this. <laughs> every chapter just hit it with a hammer. And it's so, so it requires no. Now, I think that anarchists or people trying to debate uh, from an anarchist position can put too much pressure on themselves sometimes in that the world is full of complex problems that I don't have a clue about. I don't, I don't have a clue how to solve addiction issues. I don't have a clue whether all these different schemes would work about uh, preventions of advertising or they're just total bunk and it has no effect. And anarchism is not a little box that you drop a complex problem into, pull a lever and a perfect solution comes out. If I, if I had a box like that, we wouldn't need anarchism because I could just tell them what to do. You know, it'd be, it'd be great. But that's that's not what it is. It's, it's the recognition that there is a morality which we should take consistently. We shouldn't say, okay, don't... Um, don't steal except for the government, that's fine. The same morality is consistent for society. And then it's an examination of the the consequences of coercive action and say, well, that's probably a really bad way to solve the problem. That's going to have all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, and then to come on to your uh, question, James, about about this, I've, I was surprised. I don't think that I had a kind of emotional attachment to the state. I might have had emotional attachments to other things in life, but when when I saw the, the logic of anarchism step by step and I arrived at that position, it just seemed like, okay, great. I never really wanted this thing associated. It always seemed pretty like a pretty bad idea to me. And then I was surprised to encounter people who it would be really seemed to touch a nerve of them when you criticize the state and they have a strong attachment and they're all kind of we're all kind of raised by the state in the schooling system. And um, so I came to see conversations about this as really being akin to a kind of court deprogramming. The, and, and that's why I quote in the last chapter, I opened it up with um, a quote by Megan Phelps Roper, who was in the, the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. And uh, they were raised from, um, from, from childhood onwards to protest the funerals of soldiers and anyone they consider to be deplorable in society. And they have this extreme Christian theology. And um, it's, she, she talks in the book about how she stepped out of that, how she came to see the contradictions into it and the kind of experiences that led her to that. And I find that very interesting for talking to employ that kind of thinking about when talking to people about the state of, so I, I it won't work. There are people that will be committed to their grave to, to statism. But what I found is, is more helpful is to ask questions that get them to examine their own positions. And they probably won't do it while you're standing there, but the more honest of them might wake up at three in the morning and go, Darn it, he had a point there, actually. I, I didn't have a good answer to that. And you want to make people troubled in their own mind. Yeah. Very nicely, just leave some something that troubles them. Yeah, exactly right. I think that all of the profound changes in consciousness probably happen at three in the morning. Mm. <laughs> you know, actually. Um, yeah. And if we really want to psychoanalyze statism itself, I would say that it, the, uh, the, the, family, the, the state as a substitute or some sort of stand-in for the family structure 
is not just an analogy. I think it really plays on fundamental human sort of uh, interactions and social formations to the point where, uh, I mean, even things like left, right, nanny state versus law and order state is mummy government, daddy government. When you attack that paradigm altogether, I, I think some people take it as an attack on their family. And I think they, they probably psycho uh, psychologically defend against it in a similar way. So it, it is a very, it's a needlessly touchy subject. We should just be arguing about, well, how, sh- how should society function? But of course, people are deeply invested in the types of structures that they've become involved in. And, and then, of course, there's a large portion of the public whose paycheck depends on some way in the state. So at any rate, there's a lot of issues here. Uh, I, I think we've broached some of the major points here. And uh, for more detailed uh, thoughts about how do we, how do we approach non-coercive government-like structures or free market-like structures? And what do they mean? What would they look like? I would suggest people do check out The Essence of Anarchy. Once again, the link will be in the show notes. But finally today, let's talk a little bit about the other work you do. What uh, Tell us about your Deep State Consciousness uh, podcast. Yeah, I kind of fell into podcasting because I had some interesting friends and I thought they should be interviewed. And for a long time, I didn't do it because I didn't think I could get anything original from them. And then I found how amazing it is that when two people sit together, the, the, the interaction brings all sorts of originality to the surface. And I found I quite liked it. So I, I found more people to interview. And then um, I started doing doing my own stuff. So um, it, it's obviously the, the deep state consciousness is a, uh, like the consciousness thing comes from my sort of background interest in spirituality and philosophy around consciousness. And then deep state was way before the term became, <laughs> you know, you can imagine how horrified I was when that became <laughs> adopted yeah. by, by the Trumpisms. Um, so that was what I was reading Peter Dale Scott years ago and this concept where he contrasted a, a classical conspiracy theory. We have one center of power to a deep state where, the, where there's movement in the depths that is clearly affecting the surface and controlling it. But you can't quite say what it is. And I thought that was a nice thing to also then take into um, a sense of spirituality that we perhaps shouldn't have um, to, to break free of some of the maybe the dogmas in that and the the um, the the. the assumptions we might make so that it was a, a combination of those two things and um so i do do stuff around uh, consciousness and uh, exploring that and philo- i've just written another book on the philosophy of conspiracy theory looking at the ways that um conspiracy theory is is u- used in all sorts of ways how it, it obviously has this effect of tearing down uh, societal structures but also perversely props them up like the the rachel maddows and sean hannity's of the world will get their their favored tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist on to talk about 9-11 and the, the not only the planes but the twin towers being holograms or something you know and that way that everyone's okay you can all go back to sleep now audience that we've they're crazy you know carry on there isn't that weird they, they have these so just in little philosophical insights and maybe of interest to to your audience james i'm doing a, a podcast series at the minute um which I've, I've titled the energy of empire and i'm picking up on the the u.s empire as it stepped overseas during the roosevelt presidency in the 1890s and they subdued the Indians at that point and went off to the Philippines and Cuba and all these different places. And then um, I've just done that in series one. And now I'm looking more at the British running into to World War One and this concept of an Anglo-American establishment and how these things came together. And ultimately, I mean, this will be a long time, looking at how we've arrived in a world where 10 years from now we'll own nothing and apparently be happy. Like, where did all that come from? So I'm trying to satisfy my own curiosities there. Excellent. Well, I will uh, hope that already some corporate reporters are 
tuned in and clued into your podcast because I did include a link to uh, Energy and, uh, and Empire, Energy of Empire number eight on Panama in a recent um, newsletter. I also included a few months back in the recommended listening of a newsletter a link to your Contradictions in Left Anti Imperialism podcast, which oh, I, right. I very much appreciated that one. I, I thought that was a really nice way of encapsulating it. So I hope people will check it out. Check out the work that you're doing generally. Check out this book. And, um, well, also, I hope this spurs some conversation about anarchism and what it is that we're even attempting to prove and to whom and under what circumstances and for what reasons, which may be the base level of this question. I think we'll leave it there for today. Richard Cox, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, James.